When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Testing, testing. Still way too loud. Can you get Jamie? Can you please come get Ellie? Okay, let's try this again. You're listening to the Neurodivergent Nurse, and I'm your host, Jamie. I'm a registered nurse who has ADHD. On this podcast, we will talk all things ADHD. I'm really just beginning to learn about this diagnosis and how to navigate through it. But I am so excited to take you on this messy and raw journey with me so that we can learn together. So let's get started. Welcome to yet another week of the Neurodivergent Nurse. I'm glad you're here tuning in to what is going to be a really, really amazing episode. This week for a lot of us in the United States, we recognize Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the U.S., we actually have a whole day dedicated to recognizing this wonderful man. It's actually a federal holiday, and it marks the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. It's observed on the third Monday of January each year. According to Britannica.com, as I was telling you, the United States celebrates that day, and the day is used to commemorate the life and the work of Dr. King, who is a Baptist minister and a prominent leader in the American Civil Rights Movement. People are encouraged to use the day to reflect on principles of racial equality and nonviolent social change. You may be thinking, we're a minute and a half in. Jamie, what does this have to do with ADHD? Did Dr. King have ADHD? I have no idea. But did you know that people with ADHD are often justice warriors? I never knew that prior to my diagnosis. I just knew that I had this desire to make the world a better place for people to be able to see others as just human beings and worthy of existence. I get frustrated at the lack of equity that other people have, the lack of equality, racial discrimination, systemic racism, the stereotypes and the stigmas that are put into place that hold other people back, whether it's mental health, whether it's women in the workplace, whatever it may be, you can find me at marches for women's rights. I help facilitate a book club about discrimination to bring awareness to the inherent racism that we all have. Little did I know that many people with ADHD have been scientifically proven to be just like me whenever it comes to injustice. Whether you like it or not, a lot of us with ADHD are more sensitive than neurotypicals. There are a number of possible reasons for people with ADHD experiencing emotions more intensely than others. It's been proven that people with ADHD often experience emotional lability, emotional impulsivity, and we have negative intent attribution. We're kind of an intense group, to be honest, but 
that's okay. Our intensity can be a positive things too. Those of us with ADHD, we can be more creative, more passionate. And that creativity and that passion can drive us to take actions where others just may not. And our cognitive rigidity can give a strong sense of morals. These features combined make us more susceptible to a variety of sensitivities, including justice sensitivity. You may think that that sounds a little out there, but really, in 2015, researchers found that participants with ADHD reported significantly higher justice sensitivity and greater perceptions of justice than those without ADHD. I think you probably already have it figured out, but just in case you don't, you may be wondering, what is justice sensitivity? Obviously, it's an attribute, but it's an attribute of people who experience high tendency to notice and identify wrongdoing and have more cognitive, emotional, and behavioral reactions to perceived injustice. Those of us with justice sensitivity have a harder time letting things go and have a strong desire to make right the things that we feel is really unfair and even morally wrong. It's been categorized into four perspectives. The first one is victim, the second is perpetrator, the third is beneficiary, and the fourth is observer. But I just wanna talk to you at least about the last two and how they relate to ADHD. The beneficiary is someone who passively benefits from an act of injustice, but does not personally commit to the wrongdoing. And the observer is someone who witnesses an injustice as a bystander. All right, what does that have to do with ADHD? As if we don't have enough to deal with already, right? Well, putting a name on something we already experience isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can help us understand ourselves better and other people understand us as well. And that's always a good thing, right? There was an interesting study that was published in 2015 that demonstrated this through an online game that gave out raffle tickets to participants. The participants were told their tickets would be entered into a draw for a voucher that would let them purchase items in an electronic market. The participants were led to believe that each of the players was another random participant. In reality, they were computer players the researchers had set to make certain decisions in the game. In each round, the allocators were to hand out 100 tickets to themselves and three other participants. So we had two rounds with this. In the first round, which was the profiteer condition, the allocators were predetermined by the researchers to give themselves 60, the participant 40, and the other computer player none. The participant could choose to keep the 40 tickets or refuse them and risk a reallocation that would give themselves fewer tickets the next time around, round two. In the next round, the observer condition, the participant was a referee and was not given any further tickets. The allocators gave themselves 50 tickets, another computer player 45, and a third computer player only two. The participant could allow this or could choose to take 10 tickets from players one and two and give them to the third player. The participants were told the latter option came with the risk of losing 10% of their own tickets that they had retained from the first round. The results of this, in both of the above rounds, People with ADHD were more likely to refuse the unfair allocation and redistribute the tickets in more even amounts, despite the risk of losing some of their own. This, combined with extensive research on social cognition and the social challenges faced by people with ADHD, led the authors to conclude that people with ADHD were more sensitive to social justice. There are a number of theories about why this is the way it is. In the study that I just talked about, the authors hypothesized that people with ADHD have difficulties recognizing social norms and their pronounced justice sensitivity is a coping strategy used to infer desirable social behavior. I think that 
it's probably due to repeated negative social experiences that we tend to overcorrect and overcompensate by taking these perceived social rules to extremes. I would also suspect that due to cognitive rigidity, that we may have difficulty being flexible once that we have internalized these social rules. The authors of that same study concluded that the motivation to follow social norms, but the experience of not being able to do so, may be the foundation of higher justice sensitivity. Repeated confrontations with the social environment might serve to sharpen the perception of justice and injustice. Realistically, confrontations with the social environment is a painfully accurate description of a lot of our lives, and it explains both our justice sensitivity and our social anxiety. With so many painful experiences of peer rejection in the lives of people with ADHD, it's no wonder we develop coping mechanisms. And I think that it's amazing that a strong sense of justice and injustice is one of our many coping mechanisms that we found throughout our lives. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Chicago, 1966. On today's episode, I have two really wonderful nurses from Canada. They are the host of the Gritty Nurse podcast. It is a phenomenal podcast that I encourage you to listen to if you haven't done so. On this episode, we did not talk about ADHD. We did, however, talk about being a voice for those who need someone to speak up for them. We did talk about standing up for what is right and what is just and all the ways that our countries, our healthcare system, and our society is failing so many. I just want to add, since we're actually talking about situations and very strong feelings towards what is right, the feelings and the thoughts associated in this episode of the podcast and all of my podcasts belong to me, and they in no way reflect where I work. I hope that you really enjoy this episode and you get inspired by these two courageous and strong women. Welcome to another week of the Neurodivergent Nurse. This week, I have two guests that I am so excited about. I have Amy and Sarah here, and they are the host of the Gritty Nurse podcast. This is a podcast that I've listened to for years. I, I love so much the diversity that they bring, multiple episodes that I just can't get enough of, and then I've gone back and listened to involved where nurses became politicians. And even the other day, I can't remember which one I was listening to. I sent you guys a message. I'm like, this is wonderful. And I can't get enough of it, but I really appreciate you two taking the time to be here and to be on this show. Can you talk a little bit more about your show and kind of the inception of it and how it got started? Maybe I can start by talking about why we started the podcast. So um, Amy and I are former coworkers. We've worked together twice in two different organizations, um, two different roles. And 
you know, we experienced bullying and we had our own mental health struggles. And when it really came down to it, we felt like the organization was not doing anything to address the issues. And um, like I grew up in a household where you kind of just keep your head down and you get your work done. And even going through nursing school was never really taught about advocacy. But I was one of those people where when someone tells me I can't do something, it makes me want to do it more. And so when I felt like we weren't being listened to, that they just wanted to sweep us under the rug, it made me angry. And that's where we tried to bring our concerns up to leadership and nothing was happening. So Amy came to me one day and said, why don't we start a podcast and really use that as our way to spread our message? And I thought, sure, why not? And so it was just taking that chance and taking that risk, knowing that we had not done this before and we didn't know really anyone else who had that was also a nurse was really empowering. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and people at least up in Canada, cared what nurses had to say. And it kind of just snowballed from there. So we talk about all different sorts of issues. At first, it was really therapy for me. And now I see that people are listening and our message is resonating. And really what we want to do is amplify the voices of those who have been silenced and bring to light issues that a lot of nurses think about, but we're not necessarily talking about. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other piece is we do a lot of advocacy work. And I think just through actually having a podcast was, was the impetus for some of that advocacy work to start. We've, we were just so passionate about, you know, saying that we can't be the only people that are in this boat that have these experiences that have experienced these things. And we want to share our stories. And then we also want to share other people's stories and other people's experiences, because we felt that that was important too. In nursing, there's a lot of silencing, a lot of bullying and harassment. And we're just like, you know what, we got to tell our stories, we got to lift other people's stories up. So up and that's how we started the Gritty Nurse podcast. And the other pieces, we just talk about a lot of things that mean a lot to us. So mental health, health equity, anti-racism, women's rights and women's health, and then just nursing and healthcare in general. And I mean, it's it's been a journey. It's been two years. It's It's been a wild ride, that's for sure. Two years. I feel like it's so much longer than two years that I've known. <laughs> it feels like that. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you, I have so many questions for you with all of the work that the two of you are doing. You've recently, I mean, I say reason, I feel like over the last year, you've really kind of hit it big in a sense of making, putting a face with the justice you've been on television shows. You've actually had the ability to work and talk to your political representatives to be able to talk Prime about Minister, the, yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Huge deal. Because then I said, Hey, when you talk to Joe Biden, say that you need your assistant there, that's me. Right. Um, <laughs> I want to be included <laughs> on that. Y'all, if you like the show, please consider joining the Neurodivergent Nurse Podcast Patreon. It shows how much you care, and it allows me to continue to produce these episodes week after week. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes and some pretty great fan mail from time to time as a thank you. And please, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention. And that increases the likelihood that other people who struggle with neurodivergency will be reached. If you're interested in joining the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash the neurodivergent nurse. Which is really awesome. What was one of the biggest mind-blowing interviews that you got to be a part of so far with your with your hard work with justice? Wow, that is a good question. I guess 
just recently we had an interview with the Canadian press. So this was just last week and they were talking about, at least here in Canada, the first anniversary of the vaccines is coming. So I believe it was the end of December last year for us. And just thinking about how the pandemic has affected both of us from the beginning, they were asking a lot about my grandmother and she passed away actually in the first uh, wave of COVID in long-term care. And I got really emotional. Like Mm -hmm. I don't normally do that. I'm one of those people where I don't cry much, but when I do, it just, it's just like waterworks. And so for me, it was very, it was very memorable because someone really wanted to know about my experience and really how it affected me personally. And we talk a lot about how it affects us as healthcare professionals and the part where it affects you personally, I think is equally important. And so that was something that was really memorable to me. Um, Another one was the first time that our university reached out to us. So Amy and I went to the University of Toronto to get our master's degrees. And the first time that they reached out to us and really wanted to know how and why we started the podcast was a really pivotal moment for me because this was this was like um, a university that I really looked up to that I really enjoyed my time at. And the fact that they wanted to know what we were doing was really impactful. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the the ones that stand out in my mind is I think our very first interview which was um, with CBC. And it was kind of funny how it all came about. The media was spending a lot of time speaking to physicians about COVID-19. And we knew that like nurses are the backbone of healthcare. We knew that nurses had a voice and had a role, weren't being heard in the media, which is like kind of bizarre. And I remember there's actually someone who I really respect and look up to. His name is Dr. Brian Goldman. I've been listening to his show called White Coat Black Art on CBC for years, like when I was like a a young and nursing student. And I kind of called him out on social media. I was like, hey, you know, you guys talk about, talk to physicians all about the pandemic. Why not ask a nurse? Why not talk to a nurse? And boom, um, we got a call from CVC and he's like, Hey, we want you to come on white coat, black art. I almost died. <laughs> I was just like, Oh no, he sees us. And, and I think that was a, that was a very pivotal moment for myself and Sarah, because we hadn't done any media before and we had no media training, no expertise in this area. We just knew that nursing voices needed to be heard. And we went out there, we did the thing. (laughs) It it was, it was scary, but you know, at the end of the day, two years later, we're still here. It was a huge life-changing moment because that really started the ball rolling. Sarah and I have done over a hundred media spots, whether it's been television, uh, news, radio. Oh, you know, just those things, just TV, just prime minister. it's (laughs) It's unreal. And the thing is, but the thing is, I think the, the main point is, really bringing that voice of nursing forward because we haven't heard it. We haven't heard it really in Canada. So it's, it was kind of unprecedented. And we're, we're now seeing more nurses in the media, more nurses talking about advocacy and things that we need to, to change. So for me, that was a huge moment. And then the other moments, not really about media or anything. It was just a moment with a physician that came on our show and his name is Dr. Uh, Alika LaFontaine, and he's an anesthesiologist. He's also an Indigenous uh, anesthesiologist. And we were talking about pain because we always say like pain is what the patient says it is. Mm-hmm. And I actually had just finished having my knee surgery and I had such a horrible experience. And he had told us his story and his brother's story with their experience of pain, because I believe his brother was a dentist. And it, and the one thing that always stuck with me is it doesn't matter about your privilege. It doesn't matter about your status. And what he said was, because of course his brother was indigenous too. He's like, you know, 
I could have been a world-renowned dentist, doctor, didn't matter. As soon as I took off the white coat and people saw me, you know, as an indigenous person, my life again, didn't matter. And that's Mm. how sometimes people in healthcare, you know, black physicians, black nurses, you take off the scrub cat, you you take off the, the white coat, and now you're just another black individual. You're just another indigenous individual and how the treatment of care and pain is so different in that experience. And I, and I lived it. That definitely stuck with me too. Made me even want to advocate even more. So here we are today, right? <laughs> I can't imagine uh, want to advocate anymore coming from the two of you. Um, but, oh, I mean, that stabs my soul. There was a patient early on in the pandemic who was a physician and she caught COVID. She was a black woman and she recorded her, her entire experience. And unfortunately yeah. she passed away, but very similar to what you're talking about. She just could not get people to believe what she was saying, whether it was pain oriented, whether it was based on the ability to not be able to breathe, which you can draw an ABG and figure that out very quickly, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, and and to see that there's not dishonesty there. There's not a desire for attention, which is mind blowing to me why that would even be a thought in healthcare period, period based on skin color. And that was one of the things that really resonated with me too, that things just have to change. They really do. Sarah, you were talking about how the bullying and things like that was, was a bit of a catalyst into it. What type of bullying did the two of you go through as nurses that really made you want to make a difference, at least in the world of being a nurse? or in the hospital setting in general? Yeah, I think that both of us had experienced varying degrees of bullying throughout our nursing careers. But for me, it was really when I worked at a hospital, the first hospital that Amy and I worked with was someone that was my peer and someone who had held the position before me was actually purposely trying to withhold information from me so I couldn't do my job. And then just doing things like backstabbing, like setting me up for failure. So telling me things that were wrong so that I would fall into that trap or, you know, making comments about my physical appearance, um, just doing whatever she could to bring me down. And it really affected me. Like I remember spending afternoons in my office crying because I didn't know how to face this individual. And I didn't know that I had options. I didn't know that I could go to anybody. I felt like I had done something wrong, that I started on the wrong foot with her. Then I, I left and I went to a different organization where Amy and I experienced bullying from someone who was our supervisor. And, you know, when you feel like you're being bullied, the first person you're supposed to go to is your supervisor. But what do you do when that person is the person attacking you and you feel like you have nowhere to turn and you feel so vulnerable and it's really starting to affect your mental health? That is where I started to think something's wrong with the system because maybe part of it is that individual, but the system wasn't set up to support us in navigating through it. And, you know, I had my own struggles in going on stress leave, or I should say trying to go on stress leave because the hospital wouldn't support me. They wouldn't pay me. They said I didn't have a diagnosis. You know, I wasn't sick enough. And, you know, it was me being off and daily, daily emails, daily phone calls, trying to prove that I needed to be off. And ultimately, they couldn't even tell me if my job was secure. So I wasn't getting paid. They weren't telling me. They just said, you need to come back to work, but we can't tell you that if you stay off any longer, that your job will still be there for you. And so it was so frustrating because I'd never been off sick for anything before ever. And for them to not 
support me when I really needed that time off was it was uh, shocking. And I just think about like, I know how to navigate the system, right? So how is it for people that aren't in healthcare or don't know the things that I know? How, how do they even, you know, navigate that situation? So it was, it was just something that I felt needed to be shared. I couldn't go on knowing that I was being silenced by so many people. What about you, Amy? What what have you experienced when you felt like you were being bullied in your place of work? Yeah, I mean, I think it really starts right off of nursing school, which is kind of unfortunate. I I mean, I, I don't want to regale of all the tales that kind of happened as a nursing student, but I think that's where it really started. And, and you know, you think that um, you'd have leaders who, who would talk about the bullying and the violence that occurs in nursing school, and they kind of say, oh, you know, ha ha ha, nurses eat their young but they don't actually do anything to prevent that from happening. And, it, and really, I think every, every nurse has had that experience where, you know, they, they're the new nurse, they go on a shift and no one talks to them or, you know, they're withholding information from them. And then it just continues to go down the, the same pathway as you're, you know, five years in, 10 years in. And even though you think that, you know, from going from a bedside nurse to an educator or a clinical practice leader that it would change. It didn't change. The bullying just continued from the top down. So again, like Sarah said, we both had an experience where we both had the same supervisor and the bullying was insidious. There was a lot of gaslighting where, you know, you would, you would thought that, uh, you said something or you did something and the person was like, no, that never occurred or being very insidious in terms of like, say, putting it on you, making it sound like you were crazy. And it was just a really horrible experience. And again, like the person who was bullying was the person who you would have to report to. So that made it really challenging. And then I think the the worst piece was the mental health aspect. Clearly, most organizations are not well-prepared to deal with how how they would manage someone who's having a mental health crisis in the workplace. And that was the most distressing. Again, they looked at it like, like when we had all these forms to fill out, and I think anybody who might be going through this process can understand most of the forms looked at physical ailments. So what is physically wrong with you? What can you lift five pounds? Is it like, what, what restrictions do you need? But there are different restrictions that might be needed if it's not the body that's broken, but the mind that's broken, the mind that needs support. And that was one of the, the, the biggest things that I noticed that they didn't pay attention to mental health as health. And I think most organizations struggle with this hugely. And again, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in in really understanding how mental health may work and how mental health may need to be perceived. Because just as if I broke my leg, there's a very specific trajectory, right? Like I know that the bone takes this amount of time to heal. I should be able to do X, Y, and Z by this time. It's not the same for the brain. And people have to be cognizant of that. And they have to be respectful of that and empathetic and show compassion. And there was a lack of all those things. And that was the most challenging aspect entire of the entire situation. I wonder sometimes with talking about mental health, how we got here, right? right. Because I, I do understand that everything else is measurable. And most of the time it is, it is definitively measurable, right? If your blood pressure is consistently 190 over 98, you can see that you are often in a hypertensive crisis. We can do those things. But whereas if you say someone is schizophrenic, we know that it is what an increased, uh, 
dopamine, I think is what they have that triggers that mentally, that chemical imbalance. But we don't look at that the same as needing to help make it better as we do, because with the schizophrenic, if that goes untreated, they can do so much harm to themselves. They can do so much harm to others. It's, it's such a difficult thing for them to deal with, but I don't understand how we don't see the difference between that outcome of not being treated versus someone who is consistently hypertensive in the upper 190s, 200s, they could end up having a stroke, could have heart attacks, could have an aneurysm from that high blood pressure. I just wonder how we got to this place as providers and in healthcare systems that we just don't care about the outcome because we can't touch it the same way that we can a broken bone or high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the invisibility of it. It's the it's the stigma and that's attached to mental health, right? I think there's still so much work to to unpack. Um, how people really perceive people with mental health. We see it again, not just in healthcare, but in just, you know, the general world when there might be a mental health crisis of an individual, we send police. Well, why are we sending police? I mean, is the thought that this person is going to harm somebody? Like, are there not better professionals that might be well-equipped to deal with this individual? I think there's there's just a, a systems thinking that needs to change ter- an approach in terms of how we approach patients that have mental health crises. And I think at the end of the day, everyone's going to face a mental health crisis, but we have to show compassion and we have to have better ways in dealing with it Mm -hmm. and talk, just talking about it for, for one. Right. Yeah. And I don't know how we don't base so much of what we do. I mean, Canada is a very intelligent country. The United States mostly is a very intelligent country. We, we we're comprised of very intelligent individuals, right? We're very blessed in a sense to have the education system in which that we have in both places. So I can't wrap my head around the fact that we don't deal with things and issues based off of evidence, right? That is what we learned as nurses, evidence-based practice. You want to look at the statistics, you can see the benefits, you can see the risk, you can see what works well and what doesn't on the same system, what you were just talking about when you have these mental health crises, when police officers go and try to deescalate, do they really, they're, they're not really trained in mental health. I saw a thing in West Virginia where they took a social worker years ago and to these, these people who were where it was a place where they had a very high rate of overdoses. Mm -hmm. And instead of going and just arresting them, they would have the social worker go and talk to them and convince them to go to rehab. And it was measurable how great the outcomes were there versus just a police officer going to arrest them and throwing them in a jail cell that would not rehabilitate them in any sense or make them better when they get back to the outside. Mm-hmm. So it's just wild to me that we don't we don't look at the things that are truly beneficial at least in terms of healthcare and start, you know, going by that instead of what we feel. No, right. I and you. I think you can really sum this down to mental health is health, period. So if somebody was bleeding out, would you throw them into a jail cell or would you take them to the hospital? And so we we do this with people with mental health issues because either we don't 
feel like it's legitimate um, a health concern, or we just don't have the resources to support them. In Canada, at least, everybody talks about how we have universal health care. It's not actually universal. So we don't have a lot of supports for mental health unless you are an inpatient in the hospital. So in a lot of cases, the only way you can access immediate mental health is to visit your nearest emergency room. And, you know, that only happens when you're in crisis. So we really don't have a comprehensive system for mental health support. And that is a real challenge. I can see that too. And here, many of the staff members, they blow off these people who are having these mental health crises because when they are in that form of crisis, the compassion is just missing so often. We don't see that as what this person is feeling or it is causing them to outlash, to be angry, to be abrasive, to be rude, condescending, whatever, because they're just breaking down the same way that your body breaks down. If your heart's not beating appropriately and you start to die, like it, it is the same type of attention that is needed. And like you said, it's just when you're so far gone, how do you pull back? But changing, changing the system for people to recognize that it's so important and it is so beneficial to have things in place for people to be able to have a positive life, but it doesn't only impact them. It impacts everybody else around as well. Absolutely. So what is your, uh, to each of you, what is the thing that you feel the most drawn to, to advocate for? Yeah. I mean, I think for, for me, uh, particularly, I think what I'm most drawn to is, is health equity. I think, uh, we've seen throughout the pandemic that, you know, it, it's really pulled the veil back on terms of how racial individuals have been treated during during the pandemic, how how much inequity we see in healthcare. And the thing is, this inequity is long existing. It didn't just start during the pandemic. It has been here the entire time. And it's just that the pandemic has highlighted our awareness and our sensitivity to it. And I think it's so important to, to we talk about, you know, we want to see best healthcare outcomes. Well, we should want to see them for all people. And again, there's a lot of evidence that shows, um, you know, racialized people, Black people, Indigenous people suffer poorer health outcomes than than other uh, ethnicities and other racialized groups. And my goal in this life, if there's something I can do, is to really say, are we trying to do this work and help support people to be on this journey to really achieve health equity? Because at the end of the day, we can't say that we're going to be healthcare providers or we're, we're, we have excellent healthcare if we're not seeking out healthcare solutions that work best for all types of people. One of the things that I saw this week was it was actually, I think it was, I saw on NBC, it was a black physician who had a diagram of it was a black pregnant body with a, with a fetus in that was black as well. And, you know, for some people they'd be like, oh, whatever, it's just a fetus. But the thing is at the end of the day, all of our training, all of the things that we've seen in our labs and nursing and otherwise are not racialized people. Like these are things that are are critical, not even just the representation, but even how we might go about diagnosing certain types of things, because we need to look at how it might look or appear differently on darker skin. I think this is just really important work. And I'm, I think at the end of the day, if I can, if I can change one person's clinical outcome, outcome one patient at a time, I'd be more than happy to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And and for me, it's about creating 
a healthy work environment for nurses. So whether it's addressing issues that you don't learn about, like mental health, racial inequities, you know, bullying, I think that's really important to keep nurses in the workforce by creating a healthier work environment for them and also letting them know all the possibilities there are in nursing. It is a very diverse profession. So yes, you can work in a hospital, but you can work um, in home care. You can do research. You can work in public health. There are so many different avenues and also just advocating for the profession in general, making sure that we are front and center um, when there is an issue, especially that affects nurses. So I think the pandemic has really given us an important um, chance to do that and being the change that we want to see. So we don't see a lot of nurses speaking to the media and we want to let people know that there's a way you can do it and still be around. So Amy and I have been doing this for a while. We're still here and we want to let people know that you can speak to the media and you can use uh, social media as a way to make your voice heard. I feel like that's so difficult often because you Many people fear the reaction of their employer, right? Because we all sign, at least here, we sign these contracts saying that we're not going to say anything socially that would reflect negatively on the hospital that we work for. For example, I made a TikTok once, did not have my full name. It didn't have where I worked. It didn't have anything like that, but it talked about being an ICU nurse and how, when I came in that the patients were intubated, sedated, the family was gone for the night so that I could focus. And the nurse that gave me a report was coming back on and how that was going to be one of the best nights that I look forward to that. I'm a critical care nurse. I love mm-hmm. having patients. I don't love it for them, but I love having patients that are on the brink of death that I get to truly get in there and save their lives. It is what I've been trained to do. It is what my mind is capable of. And I love being that person to be able to, that my hands, that I'm that vessel that prevents them from death. Do you know the director of my hospital came to me and said something about it and I had to take down everything because as an ICU nurse, I can't be thankful that my patient has protected airway, that my patient patient is on multiple drips that I have to titrate correctly, that I have to pay this close, intense attention to, that it was actually a negative thing for the community that didn't, that's an hour and a half away from where I even live. That's so, really bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to even, I think a lot of people are so in fear to stand up for the things that they know are correct because it may look negative to the place that they work and it shouldn't be that way at all but I I, I'd want to ask you Jamie like if a physician in your organization wrote the same thing do you think they'd be asking them to take it down as well I don't know I don't think so because it came from a nurse director that's really bizarre right like I think again this is where we need to look at like is there some gender discrimination too right like there's so much silencing of women in general like nursing is a female dominant profession I'm not saying that 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 males are not a part of it and, and we want more males in the profession mm-hmm, definitely but there are a lot of females in nursing and there's just so much silencing there's just so much fear in term like we would be such a powerful group if we stood together and actually just said hey this is our truth this is what we're going to be speaking but there's so much fear because there has been negative repercussions that stop nurses from talking about what's really happening. And we shouldn't be a fearful group. We shouldn't be afraid to say, Hey, you know, this is something that's affecting me as an individual. This is something that we want to advocate on the behalf of patients to make sure that we see better or healthy outcomes. 
that's not that's not doing something wrong and again i'd have to i'd have to ask my organization like what is it that i'm saying that you're so fearful about and why should i take this down again especially if you're not reflecting the organization's values vision or or speaking on behalf of the organization mm-hmm. if you're not doing any of those things it's kind of none of their business that's kind of my it experience. isn't <laughs> but on the same on the same token so after that i had a patient that i responded to in a rapid and this patient was definitely okay it was one of those silly calls which i love going to as well i love when the patients are good when i show up but i'm in there and i'm talking to this patient and they had this was during the time of like the blm protests that were just all over the television and this white person asked me they said i don't really understand this Do you, I don't, and I know that it was a rhetorical question and I had a choice at that moment that I could either say, like I could kind of blow it off and give the wrapped in a beautiful box and bow answer that my organization would appreciate, or I could have a conversation because this patient asked me a question that I could give them a true response of my stance, why I think this, that it is important, why I think that the media presence to be able to show this and the loudness that's going on is needed. And it was, it was just a toss up. I truly had a thought that I'm going to have this conversation with this woman. She asked me, but if she files a complaint, I could be fired because I am speaking up for the disparities and the injustice of black Americans in my country, specifically all around me in my town that I witnessed that is palpable. And, but, you know, ultimately it came down to what was most important was maybe the conversation that I had with this woman that maybe she may stop and think this is unjust. This is unfair. And she asked me a question. And if I lose my job, then I'll lose it. I mean, it's a lot easier to have that conversation than like, be like, okay, I'm not going to post a TikTok, you know? Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think those conversations are important. And I think that that is a, a reflection of the healthcare provider too. Like, I don't think that's something that's, that should be seen as negative or something that you should be penalized should not. for. I think that's unreal. I think at the end of the day, if someone's asking you for your opinion, because that's what she asked you for, like, you have the right to either give your opinion or not. And I, I don't think you should be, you know, put in any harm's way. For, for, because of that, I think, again, there, there are very few circumstances in which something could be deemed as, you know, not appropriate or, or negative. And again, I think that's where we're like, if you were talking about health misinformation, or you were, you know, breaching the, the patient therapeutic relationship in, in that way, that those things could be deemed as inappropriate, but giving your take on Black Lives Matter, or the injustices or inequities in health that you see, I don't think that's something that anyone should get in trouble for. But you keep using the word should. (laughs) This is not (laughs) something you should. Um, Just because it's not something that should happen doesn't mean that it is, it does not because some hospital systems, especially here, they care a lot about patient satisfaction. And if there is a complaint that will change the amount of money that the hospital receives from Medicare, Um, that is part of the Affordable Care Act. And so they place a lot more concern on the opinions of people who are patients versus the care that they truly receive. It's, Mm -hmm. it's really a disgusting portion of Yeah, you know what I did, actually, when we started getting more media requests, I had a really good hard look at our social media policy at my organization. And I, you know, I even showed it to Amy to make sure that I wasn't violating it in any way. And um, my 
organization's communications department reached out to me. So they're very aware that I do this. And I think for me, at least, it's just keeping those lines of communications open. So I have told them, you know, I never talk about where I work. And they've actually asked me to mention where I work. And I said, I just Mm want to separate as much as possible because I can't guarantee you that anything I say you're going to be 100% okay with. So I prefer to separate the two, even if you want to use my public presence for good, anything I say, you might, you know, take it and say that I didn't phrase it properly. So I never, Amy and I never mentioned where we work, even if they ask us, because we want to protect our ability to say what we want. And, you know, we're careful about it. And it might be different in different organizations, but I would really question whether or not you said anything that would damage the reputation or whether it actually is improving the reputation of where you work. Yeah. And then don't you guys have like freedom of speech laws out in the States? Like, I think it's even more different than it is here in Canada. Like, I think you guys have more flexibility on some of the things that you could speak out on versus even us. Like we, like our hate speech laws are much more stringent than even America's hate laws, hate, hate speech laws. And I think that, you know, I mean, I think maybe the thing is that people just don't want to have that fight too. Right. Like, I think it's not, it's not the, nurses can't go about and say what they feel or their thoughts or opinions they're just not willing to have the battle or the legal battle that may ensue if you know there was there was a conflict that arise but I I think this is where I talk about strength in numbers I think if if they had hundreds of nurses saying the same thing are they really going to fire all all of these hundreds of nurses probably not and again this is just how do we change the dialogue on this how do we say that you know we should have the ability to speak for uh seeing better healthcare outcomes i think it's always about what you're trying to achieve what's your end goal at the end of the day and sarah and my end game and our goal is to achieve better healthcare outcomes for all to share other people's stories because we know that other people have similar experiences and then to just lift other people's voices up because there is a lot of fear. There is a lot of silence. And like you said, there's fear of retribution. There's, there's actualized fear of people getting fired or whatnot, but we have to try to change the dial. We have to continue to speak up about these things. And there is strengthening numbers. Like, I think there's something like over 30 million nurses in the world. We need to like, we should be running this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. And it's just, again, it's, there's there's gender discrimination there's a lot of imbalance because of because of the the position that we are in there's still a lot of hierarchy that's seen but i think slowly by slowly each story each time that we have a podcast episode each time that nurses are up there doing something innovative people are starting to see that you know nursing does have a voice and and has an individual voice in which they can share a different experience so we just need to keep doing the work And I think what it comes down to, it's a lot easier to take down a TikTok about being an ICU nurse and the joys that comes from having sick patients, right? Like there's a difference between that and standing up for what is right and what needs to be said. Even if you have negative feedback, there's a difference between right and wrong. And if you don't speak up in times of oppression or times that you witness that people are not being treated appropriately, then really you are compliant with those actions. You're compliant with the way that things are. And if you see that it's never okay to be compliant, it's really not because we all deserve to be on the same level. We deserve equality and we deserve equity. We deserve both of those things. Let me ask, 
ask you another question, both of you, because I too, very big into protesting. I try to be a voice out there for people as well. Do you ever find moments where you stop and you think, this is what I do. This is my purpose to make the world a better place for others. Do you ever have those moments where you wonder if that is what life is really all about? I don't know how to appropriately articulate what I'm asking, but I know in mm-hmm. like in the dark when I'm laying down to sleep and I think, man, I've really put forth a lot of effort into this, which I feel like is a positive thing, but a lot of my life revolves around that. Do you ever mm-hmm. wonder if maybe there should be more to your life than that? Or do you think that this is, are you satisfied with that being so much of your gravity? You know, it's funny because I always felt like I was supposed to do something more with my life, but I didn't know what that was. And when I started the podcast with Amy, I didn't quite realize for a while that maybe this is what I was supposed to be doing. Of course, you know, nursing is part of it, but I never thought that so many people would be listening to what we're saying. And, you know, so many people that we've never met and may never meet are hearing our stories and it's really resonating with us. And this is going to sound really morbid, but I was talking to a friend of mine about the podcast and I'm, I was saying like, you know, if anything ever happened to me and I passed away, like this is something I can leave for my kids because this is something that hopefully will live on after I'm gone. And I hope that the stories that Amy and I share will continue to resonate for a long time to come. So I don't know if this answers your question, but I do feel like something bigger is happening and we don't always know what it is. And we just kind of go with the flow sometimes. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, definitely. There's lots of times where I lie awake at night and I'm just like, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, am, am I achieving anything? Am I moving the mark? Like, And because this work is exhausting, it is really tiring, especially when we're talking about anti-racism and equity, it is tiring. And there are days where I feel like there's nothing that can stop myself and Sarah. We're going to tell the world our stories and, and we're going to make all these changes. And there's days where it's dark, where I feel like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if I'm making any change. I don't know if what I'm saying is any of any value to people and that those times are difficult. But Mm -hmm. again, I think, for example, I actually just received a text message from someone who just said to me, Oh my gosh, thanks you for all your help and support. I got this job that I applied for and little things like that. Sometimes just say, okay, maybe I am walking down the right path. It is something that I feel that is definitely a huge part of my life and it's hugely important to me. I have racialized children. I have a child with a disability. This work is more important to me to also to make sure that their futures will be different as well because, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And they're like, my kids mean so much to me. And I just want to see that, you know, if I can make a little change and make a change for their life and for how their well-being will be, I'm going to keep on doing what I, what I think is important to do. One of my really good friends uh, before he mentioned, because the first Do No Harm podcast, it was one of those that I really tried to push to make things known. Hopefully that kindness would just start breeding itself. And I remember him saying, because in the moments I would cry because it gets emotionally heavy because there is a lot of work and you can see the importance of people being treated as people. You can see the importance of equity. You can see the need that the world just so 
desperately desires and deserves. And when you feel like maybe you are just spinning your wheels in mud, it gets, it gets really hard and you just feel so defeated and deflated sometimes. And I remember he would ask me, have you impacted the life of one person? I would say, yeah, I think that there has been from the information that I've received from people who listen that at least one person started thinking more of others. And he's like, that is an accomplishment. That is something that is incredible. And I know the two of you have reached so many more than just a single person with all of your knowledge and just your, your gusto to keep going and moving forward day after day after day. I appreciate you. I appreciate your presence in this world and what you're doing for healthcare and for the people who you know, are in your community and my community as well. Could you to tell everyone where to find you? The easiest way to find us is to go to our website, which is grittynurse.com. But we're also super active on Twitter. Our handle is Gritty Nurse. You can find us on Instagram. We're on there as Gritty Nurse Podcast, or you could just uh, Google us and we'll come up. Yeah. <laughs> I think Sarah hit all of our various different handles. We do have personal handles too. I think Sarah, Sarah's Twitter is Sarah M. Fung at, well, that's your Twitter handle. <laughs> and then I'm like, what else do I say? And then my Twitter handle is Amy Varley. So at Amy Varley. But yeah. If you two could leave just one token to the listeners to be more proactive, to help those around them, to have a bit of strength in the things that they believe to make the world a better place. What do you think that you would give the listeners? What would you leave them with? Wow. I I would say, first of all, that you are enough and the work that we do is hard. And it really, it just starts with taking baby steps and putting yourself out there a little bit. When I think about how we started the podcast, we didn't know anything. We just took a chance, learned by trial and error, and and that's okay, right? It's okay that you don't have everything perfect all the time. So just know that it's a work in progress and we're all learning here. Yeah, I think the piece that I probably throw on is you do have grit. I think if you're here, you have grit. If you're doing your thing and you feel that you're not doing it to 100%, you still have grit. If you failed or you feel that you failed, that means there's an opportunity to do something different or or to change up the game again and you still have grit. I think at the end of the day, all you can do is be yourself and you don't have to compare that to anybody else. And like Sarah said, you are enough. So that's probably what I would leave. And then there's always room to learn. If you feel empty and you're, you feel that there's something else to do, pick up learning or, or find a book. I think those things are really important as well. Great. Thank you too for being on here and taking the time out of your busy days. Thank you for you having too. us, Jamie. Take care, Jamie. If you would like to contribute to this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the neurodivergent nurse, where you can get exclusive bonus episode, script of the show prior to the release, uncut video interviews of the guest, input on upcoming shows and ideas, and even more. Also, be sure to follow the neurodivergent nurse on Instagram and TikTok. And if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with someone that you think could also benefit from the neurodivergent nurse. And go ahead while you have time and while you're thinking about it and rate it and leave a review five stars on your favorite listening platform so that other people can find the show easily as well and i hope you have a wonderful week and i can't wait to talk to you again 